0: Ryan Delk is our scripture reader for today, and he will be reading from the second half of John 10.
1: Our scripture reading for today is from John 10, 22-42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father, for which of them are you going to stone me? But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, and that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again, across the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of God.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the courage and boldness of Jesus in the face of stoning. Um, I can't imagine this scene. Jesus uh, was God, but he was also human like us. His heart racing um, to be surrounded uh, by aggressors. And to speak so boldly, uh, but also to speak compassionately to still seek to persuade men who are wanting to stone you. Uh, Father, we're thankful for his courage. Um, Help us to hear Jesus, hear the words of Christ, and to follow him. Uh, Father, we want uh, the promise that he gives that uh, the sheep are given eternal life, they will not perish, and no one can be snatched from Jesus's hand, which is the Father's hand, which is God's hand. We want that to be true of us and everyone we love, Uh, so help that be true today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, school just began, and uh, you can remember being in school and how exciting it was for kids when they get to buy new school supplies, when you get to buy school, school supplies. Um, this year, Maggie made fun of me because I got excited because on the girls' supply list was a scientific calculator, and it was thrilling. Like, I'm the math guy in the house, and so we just get to move forward in math. Uh, we get to be doing more advanced math and um, Texas Instruments, that's right. There was, like, a Casio, but, like, no one's buying the Casio, right? Like, no one's buying it. You're buying the Texas Instrument. Um, so it was exciting. Maggie, who doesn't love math, is excited that I'm excited. Um, the kids are just weirded out uh, that I'm thrilled with it. Um, so I have kids now in pre-algebra and algebra one. Um, next year, I'll have a geometry student. And if you can remember way back in geometry, that's when you do proofs. Did you guys do proofs in geometry, right? And it feels really silly as a teenager to be asked to prove math facts. Like you've never had to do that before. Like why, you just figure it out. Um, But you're supposed to explain your process. Um, And we are just used to being told what's true and solving problems based on those truths. Um, But in geometry, you're supposed to first show that something is true. Well, Christianity has long made use of proofs, um, most famously to prove that God exists. And sometimes they'll even be set up in a table like that um, to be able to show your work, uh, so to speak. Um, But there are proofs that God exists. And not only that, but that exists in a way that fits with Scripture's presentation of God versus theologies behind other religions. Uh, There are philosophical arguments supporting creation from nothing, uh, the possibility of miracles, the existence of the soul, the Trinity, the Incarnation. Uh, We are a people who are saved by grace through faith in the gospel, in the revealed story um, of Scripture, but faith doesn't require us to abandon reason. In fact, faith assumes and completes reason. Um, perhaps the most famous and most influential apologist uh, for the Christian faith in the 20th century was C. S. Lewis. Um, one of his most memorable proofs concerns the identity of Jesus, and it's often called the trilemma. And uh, he states it in mere Christianity uh, like this. He says, "I am trying here uh, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Uh, Mad, bad, or God. According to Lewis, those are our only options. That's the trilemma uh, that we face when we consider who Jesus is. Uh, It's a compelling proof to me, uh, especially because it's really similar to the way the Gospels depict people's response to Jesus. Uh, just last week, we read John 10, 19 through 21, and it describes uh, this difficulty that people are facing. John ten nineteen, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In John chapter 10, we have Jesus' last public defense of his ministry in the book of John. And so after this, he will perform one more sign, and then he will withdraw to prepare his disciples for life after his death and resurrection. But this is his moment to give his final defense to his biggest critics, proof of his deity. Uh, the name of this sermon series that we've been in since February is Seeing God, and that's because John chapters 1 through 12 are at pains to convince us, the readers, that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. That is what what, what John wants us to believe. John 1 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's Jesus. We are seeing God when we see Jesus. John 1 14, the Word, which was in the beginning with God, which was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus too. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so by John chapter 10, Jesus has been traveling around for three ish years, announcing himself as nothing short of the only begotten Son of God sent from God the Father to save the world from sin and death. Imagine someone walking up to you on the street and and saying that that is who they were. All right, Jesus has been calling people from all walks of life, people like you and me, to become disciples. Men, women, rich, poor, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, the morally upright, the wicked, sinners, all of them. Anyone who's willing to listen to him. Jesus calls them to leave everything behind and follow him. And as proof, he's performed astonishing miracles, never done before by anyone, proclaiming his identity and mission as the only begotten son of God. Understandably, people's reactions have been mixed, but they generally fall into Lewis's three categories. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And today, zeroes in on the religious leaders who genuinely believe Jesus is the worst kind of liar. He is the devil from hell that Lewis says. He's a blasphemer. And so how will Jesus respond to this accusation? Let's read verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And so Jesus' final public defense takes place at the Feast of Dedication in wintertime. This is Hanukkah. Jesus is celebrating Hanukkah when Jews uh, remember the rededication of the temple. So the temple in like 169 or something around that time was profaned by a king. So he actually set up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple and performed sacrifices, pagan sacrifices there. Uh, he outlawed scripture where it was illegal to own the Torah and to carry it, and you would be executed if it was found. And so that inspired a sort of guerrilla uprising um, in, um, in the Jewish people, and then three years later it was successful, and then they rededicated the temple, and that's what we remember at Hanukkah. Um, that is, that's what Hanukkah is about. And so uh, the temple was taken back by the hero, Judas Maccabeus, um, who's called Judas the Hammer, which is a fun name. Um, The Feast of Dedication, man, it was cherished by the Jews uh, in Jesus' day because it was the last great story of God's deliverance. Uh, And by celebrating it under harsh Roman rule, they were asking God to do it again, liberate us again. And that makes it especially ironic that Israel's greatest hero, right, the promised Messiah who's come, um, would be rejected in that very temple. Um, and that's what happened. So Jesus is walking in the colonnade of Solomon under cover because it's cold. And the Jewish leadership surround him in an act of intimidation. And they ask him a pointed question. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus' response is probably similar to ours as the reader. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Uh, we can sort of think, like, where have they been? Like, of course, Jesus believes he's the Christ. He's been signaling over and over again, saying both implicitly and explicitly how he is the Savior sent by God to save the world, that no one gets to the Father but through him, that he is life, um, that he is truth, um, that he's the fulfillment of the feast. He's been saying all these things. Who else would he be but the Christ? It is true that Jesus never publicly identifies himself as the Christ, and so maybe they're just wanting him to be explicit. Um, He never leads with his Messiah role, and so he, he will say yes when people ask him, but he doesn't incorporate it into his teaching. And that's likely because at the time, Christ and Messiah had too many political and military connotations. And so if he said, I am the Christ, people would hear something completely different than the mission of Jesus. And so he sort of incorporated other titles from the Old Testament. Uh, They would have thought him another Judas the Hammer. Uh, But we know that that's not the salvation that Jesus had in mind. But even so, uh, for those with eyes to see, Jesus's self-references, his use of the Old Testament, his handling of titles, his discussions of the relation between God and himself, he has virtually all but said that he is the Christ. And on top of that, Jesus says, look at the signs. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. The Jewish leaders have had ample evidence available to them, but they still don't believe. They've seen Jesus heal a man who was born blind. They've seen him feed the 5,000. They've seen him heal a man who had been crippled for 38 years. They've heard of him turning water into wine. And those are only the miracles John has told us about. But we know that there are hundreds of other miracles that they have witnessed. How can they not just believe? Like, why aren't they convinced yet? Well, Jesus tells them in verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. According to Jesus, after so much testimony and proof, the Jews' persistent lack of faith, the Jewish leaders, does not cast out on his identity. It casts out, it casts out on theirs. What else can Jesus do? I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with someone where try as you might, you're just going in circles. Uh, We have parents here with toddlers, like when you're just trying to convince them and there is nothing left to explain. There is no more proof available. And you begin to wonder, is it me? Or is there something in them getting in the way of agreement? Well, Jesus here is pointing out the something in them. They're trying to put him on trial and he turns the magnifying glass on them. The Jewish leader's stubborn unbelief reveals their identity more than it reveals his own. He is the good shepherd. They are just not his sheep. And this is a big, big problem for them, because if they are not his sheep, they are not God's sheep, because Jesus and God are one. And they will be left to the wolves and the thieves, and they will die. Not so God's sheep. In verse 27, my sheep, hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And the Jewish leaders lose their mind when Jesus says this and it's not unreasonable for them to do so. Remember Lewis's trilemma, no one but Jesus speaks like this. No one says that they are equivalent with the Father. These are either the words of a (laughs) lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Listen to Jesus' words again. Don't let them become normal. Uh, These are not normal words from a human being. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That is a massive problem. Delivered by a poor, powerless, uneducated man from Nazareth. If you were in a crowd and didn't know what Jesus looked like, which we don't, um, as much as Art would say that we do, we don't know what he looked like, you couldn't pick him out. Because he would be a completely unexceptional person. You would not think, oh, there is the Son of God. Like, that is the Son of God. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to identify him. How is this man making these claims? claims? How can this be true? It can only be true if God the Father is behind those words. And sure enough, that's what Jesus says. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus' hand is safe because Jesus' hand is also God's hand, one and the same. I and the Father are one. The Jewish reaction is immediate. The Jews pick up stones again to stone Jesus, to kill him, to execute him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And you see how Jesus is not diffusing the conflicts, he's raising it. He's challenging them with this trilemma of Lewis's. He's backing them into a corner, and he's forcing them to choose. Do blasphemers perform works like these? Do lunatics perform works like these? Do liars? Do megalomaniacs do stuff like this? By their own admission, Jesus' works are good. They're undeniably good. But Jesus is asking them to go further. They're not just good works, they are works of the Father. And so in verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Don't just say Jesus works are good. Don't patronize him like that. Don't minimize him like that. Jesus is more than good. He's divine. And that's not just because they're miraculous. If you look in the Old Testament, prophets in the Old Testament performed miracles. Elijah and Elisha perform a lot of similar miracles to what Jesus did as a foretaste of, of uh, Jesus coming. But these miracles specifically are self-interpreted by Jesus' own teaching. In Jesus' mind, they are clearly the fulfillment, the culmination of everything in the Jewish scriptures, everything the Jews claim to believe. The Messiah is finally here. The Christ is finally here. And surprise, he is also God. And the Jewish leadership cannot fathom this. But again, Jesus points to their own scriptures to show that it's possible. So verse 34, backing up, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? So Jesus moves to sort of speak the language of the Pharisees, which is scripture. That's, that was their thing. And so he wants to prove that it's not impossible, biblically, for Jesus to be God. And so he points to Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is an interesting psalm. Uh, It's short, and so we can uh, read through it. And it's interesting and particularly helpful to read for us modern people because it gives us a glimpse into the spiritual realm um, in a really wild way. Uh, According to the Bible, the world is more than it seems. Uh, nations and peoples are more than they seem. So Psalm eighty-two one begins, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And so what is the divine council? What are these other gods? Well, the Bible, the worldview within scripture, and the Old Testament in particular, teaches that in the same way that God chose to share his dominion, On earth with human beings so God also shares his dominion in the heavens with spiritual beings and so we talk about if you look at the creation account that the Sun and moon were created to rule the night and the day Um, the stars are there and in the same way that humans rebelled against that sharing on earth so have many of the spiritual beings like Satan and others rebelled against that sharing in the heaven they wanted to be like God in the same way that we did as sinners and just like humans, these spiritual beings will be judged for their rebellion. And Psalm 82 is an account of that judgment. So Psalm 82 describes it God has taken his place in the divine council, verse 1. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And he says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so apparently rebellion in the spiritual realm looks a lot like rebellion here. Injustice, partiality to the wicked, a failure to protect the weak and needy. And according to the worldview in scripture, each nation has its own star, uh, its own spiritual ruler behind it. Um, which legitimates, in a way, uh, the diversity of religions uh, in the world. It it honors uh, that there is something there, there, right? Uh, In Deuteronomy 32, when God scattered the nations at Babel, he scattered the gods too. Uh, But he graciously keeps Israel for himself, for Yahweh. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, but the Yahweh's portion is his people. Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. And so Psalm 82 pictures God judging the nations by judging the gods behind the nations, spiritual beings who have rebelled against the one true God. God commands them like he commands us to repent and change, but they will not. And so verse 5, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And so these spiritual beings, these gods, refuse to do justice and show mercy. And as a result, the very foundation of the earth is compromised. And so God decides to act. In verse 6, he says, I said You are gods, sons of the Most High. I gave you this title. I gave you this authority, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so unlike the Greek pantheon of gods, where those characters just do whatever they want to do, they rape, they pillage, they toy with humans, and there's no consequence or virtually no consequence, in the Hebrew pantheon, of angels, principalities, powers, God will judge justly and with finality. Just because they are in the divine council does not mean they are exempt from judgment. These spiritual beings will die like men die, and they'll fall like any prince. And sure enough, that's what you see in the book of Revelation. At the end of time, that's what John foresees, the final condemnation of Satan and all his fallen angels. That is why hell was prepared, was for them. Now, why does Jesus quote Psalm 82 to the Jews in John 10? If we read it again, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, you agree? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? And so Jesus is basically saying the Old Testament already has a category for beings who are not God being called gods and sons of God, doesn't it? And given all the miracles, given all the teachings, how big a jump is it for me to claim I am the son of God, asks Jesus. How big a jump is it for me to claim that I am more than just a God because I'm not like these in Psalm 82? that will fall like a prince, like any prince. But I am one with God, God himself. They are There are heavenly beings, and then there is Yahweh. There are created principalities and powers, and then there is the only begotten Son of God. There are sons of God, and then there is the Son of These are just those to whom the word of God came, who come into the divine council to receive their judgment, to receive their marching orders. But I am the word of God himself. I was at God's right hand in Psalm 82. I was there and I have come down. I, along with the Holy Spirit, am one with God. These, again, are wild claims. But prove Him wrong. That's what Jesus is saying. Prove me wrong. Prove he's a liar. Prove he's a lunatic. Prove he's not Lord. Psalm 82 ends with a prayer from Asaph, the psalm's author, for God to accomplish the judgment he said he would do. Psalm 82, 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Asaph is pleading, do what you said you would do arise stand up from the divine council do something take back the nations from these wicked rulers these wicked spirits whoever and whatever they are and that prayer is fulfilled in jesus jesus is the answer to that prayer in jesus god arose so god didn't just replace these gods with other gods Jesus came himself in his son. Jesus in John 10 says the father consecrated him and sent him into the world to bind Satan and plunder his house, to judge the earth, to restore its foundations, to save the weak and the fatherless and the needy. If they won't do it, God will do it. And Jesus the son comes with all the power of the father, all the holiness of the father, all his justice, all his wisdom, all his love and grace and mercy. It almost sounds too good to be true. And I wonder sometimes if that's some of the Pharisees' resistance to believing in Jesus. It's just too perfect. It's too good, too easy. Their experience of religion, the way they had been discipled and discipled themselves was hard and rigorous and punishing and so they didn't know what to do with leah's call to worship come all who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest my yoke is easy that is completely foreign to them it's too good it's too perfect they are used to rigor and then jesus shows up and it feels like he does whatever he wants And then he lets people into the kingdom who have spent their life doing whatever they want. Like, what gives? It's too good to be true. It's too good to be good. It's actually not good. I don't think it's good. And in that, I find it so interesting and kind of Jesus to the Pharisees when he softens his expectations of them at the end. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, look, he's pleading with them to believe. Even if you don't believe me, that's okay. You don't have to call me the Son of God, which I deserve to be called. You don't have to worship me, which I deserve to be worshiped. Even if you don't believe in me, believe the works of that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I feel like that's a concession some of us need to take from time to time. When we're struggling to believe and live like Jesus is Lord, God in the flesh, worthy of our complete and unquestioning devotion, but here I am questioning him questioning his lordship, wondering if he is not a liar or a lunatic. And to that, Jesus says, that's okay. Believe the works, and you will know and understand. It'll come. Knowing and understanding will come. In Greek, those are the same words. They're just different tenses. And so he's, he's more saying that you may know a little now and continue to know more and keep knowing more that the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. Speaking of proofs of God's existence, this passage reminded me, and and I don't exactly know how the connection was made in my brain, but uh, of one of the more notorious proofs uh, for God, uh, which is Anselm's ontological argument. Uh, It's confounded people since it was written down or discovered um, or thought of a thousand years ago Uh, the philosopher of religion william Rowe writes about it perhaps no other argument in the history of thought has raised so many basic philosophical questions and stimulated so much hard thought even if it fails as a proof of the existence of god it will remain as one of the high achievements of the human intellect and so with that description i can't really do it justice and will likely butcher it, but I think it's worth walking through. Um, when you read it, it's kind of like, I tried to describe it to Maggie and did a terrible job, so hopefully this is better. Um, pray for Maggie and then she gets subjected to these kinds of things. But, uh, reading it is sort of like watching a magic trick. Um, it's just too smooth, too simple. There, like, there's got to be some, like, like play of the hand or something that I'm not seeing. But here it is, uh, simply stated. Um, it starts with a basic definition for God um, that's sort of universally accepted. By definition, God is universally defined as something than which nothing greater can be conceived. And so if you can't say anything about God, you can say that. That God is something than which nothing greater can be conceived. And so next, it's a, it talks about things. Well, a thing exists either in the mind only, in the understanding only, like an idea, or in both the mind and in reality. And so we think, like, we can have a, for a painter, we have an idea in our mind, and then eventually we paint it, and then it comes out. And so it exists in both places. Well, if we compared an idea in the mind or something that was both an idea and reality, we would say the thing that is real is greater. It's greater to exist in reality than to exist merely in the understanding. Well, back to our definition of God. If God exists merely in the understanding, then God is not the greatest possible being. Since the greatest possible being would exist both in understanding and reality. But God is by definition the greatest possible being. Therefore, God must exist in reality. Easy. You're sort of like, you're like, I mean, you like follow the logic, and it's been one of those peculiar things, because the logic of it is pretty unbreakable, and people have spent a thousand years testing it, but you have to, you have to prove false the first five, or the last one's true. Um, It's bonkers, and yet it's logically sound. Uh, In order to defeat it, you would have to undermine the five premises, and people have struggled to do that. Um, I certainly can't. My best attempt at summarizing Anselm's argument would be this. God is too perfect not to exist. Existence would be part of his perfection. He's too perfect not to exist. So try that out out on your friends. Without knowing any of the specifics of who God is, we know God by definition is perfect, the greatest being we could ever conceive of, and that has to include existence. God is too perfect not to exist. Now, this is just the beginning because it only proves existence. It doesn't tell us anything about God besides the fact that he's the greatest being, that he's perfect. It's a seed from which faith might grow. Uh, Hebrews eleven six 6 is one of my favorite definitions of faith. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And such a sweet and compassionate definition of faith. It's like, can we start there? That you believe that God exists and that he's good to those who seek him. That's a that's a legit place to start. But we need to keep thinking in order to discover what a perfect being named God might be like. And there's actually a whole branch of theology called perfect being theology, which investigates it what qualities would count as a perfect being? What, what would someone have to be in order to be perfect? Now, if you were to ask little kids that question, what would a perfect God be like, you'd get some funny answers. Um, he would answer all my prayers and give me whatever I want. Like, that's what a perfect God would be. And for the kid, that would mean unlimited candy without cavities, unicorns are real, tigers are friendly, we can all fly, except for my brother Tommy, because he's mean, he can't fly. Everyone else can fly. And something like that would be the perfect god to a kid. And they're basically describing a genie, right? And genies are great beings. They are powerful beings. But as we grow up, we realize that genies are not the greatest being we can conceive of as we mature. That's not the greatest being. Uh, Robin Williams, genies have phenomenal cosmic powers, but itty-bitty living space, right? It's not the best thing. And that's a good description of genies and a good description of a God that gives us everything we ever wanted. It's an itty-bitty living space. It's a small God, actually. As we get older, our thinking around God's perfection hopefully matures. And so we might pray for candy, but not unlimited candy uh, because of cavities. That wouldn't be good. We pray for freedom, but we also pray for safety. We pray for safety, but also freedom. We pray for peace, but also justice. We pray for grace but also repentance. We pray against suffering, but as we age, we learn that with time, suffering is the only path to what's good. Have your prayers matured over time? How have they matured? How has your idea of a perfect God changed? In general, with age, we learn to humbly trust God, if he is the perfect being. We're going to trust him. We become more and more acquainted with our own imperfection, both in terms of sin, but also just limitedness. And so we lean more and more on his unfathomable perfection. He is God and I am not. And so we trust God when he says in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And of course, it's one thing to quote that in the abstract. It's another thing to compare my actual thoughts with God's thoughts and to have conflict with him. When my thoughts are different from his, and that cognitive dissonance between our thoughts and God's thoughts is what the Jewish leaders are facing in Jesus in John 10. Their thoughts were not Jesus' thoughts, and it's hard for them. Their idea of the Christ is not Scripture's idea of the Christ. But rather than submit to Scripture, they call Jesus a liar and a lunatic and want to stone him. Where are you tempted to call Jesus a liar or a lunatic? What is that thing that he says about himself, about God and the world that is so hard for you to stomach? What creed is he asking you to believe? What ethical code just baffles you? What demand is he making on your life? What story is he writing for you that you just cannot believe would be written by a perfect God? Where do you think Jesus is out of his mind? Or worse, where do you suspect he's lying to you about being good? He's actually not good. In the midst of that struggle, which we all face at times, how do you hold on to faith that Jesus is Lord? Hear again the gracious concession of Jesus. Even though you do not believe me, it's okay. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's the logic that somehow reminded me of Anselm's argument. Jesus is saying to them, look at my works. I'm too perfect not to be real. I'm too great not to exist. For which of my good works are you going to stone me? For which quality will you give up on Jesus? Are you going to give up on faith because of Jesus's kindness? Because of his grace, his wisdom, his power that is only used to serve others and never himself? Am I going to give up on Jesus because of his limitless love for his enemies? Am I going to reject him because he died on the cross for my sins? Are we going to reject him for being raised from the dead? As we look at the world which Are we going to reject him for introducing universal human rights, equality, freedom, progress, justice for the poor, compassion for the sinner? All those things come from the ministry of Jesus and would not exist apart from him. Jesus is just too good not to be God. I feel like that's the proof. That's the apologetic. He is too good. He's definitely not a liar. He's definitely not a lunatic. He must be Lord. That's the only option, which means he cannot be dismissed. He cannot be patronized. He cannot be pacified. He can only be worshiped and loved and served. I love preaching through the Gospels. We preached through Luke a few years ago. We're preaching through John now. And I feel like the more life I live, the older I get, the more Jesus just must be God and God must be Jesus. There's just no one that's a better fit. Is anyone a more perfect being than Jesus? How would you improve on him? How would you improve on God if God is like him? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is truly the only perfect man, which means he just has to be the one perfect God. He has to be. That chain of thought is exactly what Jesus said would happen to the Jewish leaders if only they would trust his works, trusting his words would follow. And so I wonder where you are on that journey. Have you let Jesus back you into a corner yet where you corner Jesus and accuse him and then he turns it on you? Like, let that happen. Do that. What works of his can you just not deny? Where do you need to submit to Christ as Lord even as you still wrestle with what he says about himself? When Jesus in John 10 tells the Jewish leaders to believe in order to understand, that's actually the famous phrase that's picked up by Anselm in the same book with the weird argument, um, the purpose of his whole project. Um, so he's not—he doesn't write it interestingly as a—he's not like in a conflict with an atheist or something like that. The whole thing is written as a prayer, um, and so that that ontological argument is delivered as a prayer. Um, And his philosophy book begins like this in prayer. It says, I do not try, Lord, to attain your lofty heights, because my understanding is in no way equal to it. But I do desire to understand your truth a little, that truth that my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. Next week, we'll get to John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and that's the ultimate sign pointing to Jesus' identity, the ultimate sign until he raises himself from the dead, right? Laying down his life for us. And that is the work that compels us today to bow down and believe. In sending his only begotten son to save a sinful world, God the Father shows himself to be the most perfect of all beings, that which nothing greater can be conceived. And in the gospel of grace, Jesus is shown too good not to be true, too perfect not to be the Son of God. Though we, like the Pharisees, have sinned, taking up rocks to sown Jesus, Jesus still loves us. He pays for our sins, defeated death on the cross, and is now alive, ready to take back the nations as his inheritance. Can you honestly think of anything better? It's a wild claim, but it's no lie, it's true. And all who come, all who listen to Jesus' voice and follow his lead will be given eternal life, will never perish, so that no one is able to snatch them out of Christ's hand. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for you, even in our doubt and questioning in our frustrations. Father, I pray for those today, here, all of us, really, me. uh, There are places in my heart right now where my thoughts are not your thoughts. But help us to trust you. And when we struggle to trust you and the specifics, help us to look to Jesus who is God, who is the Christ, who is our Savior, to look at His gracious work, His dying for us on the cross, His being raised from the dead, His promise to shepherd us well and to give us rest and light yokes. Father, to to see the full spectrum of who Jesus is and to trust the works, to trust you. Father, to call you Lord. Father, we worship you for being the greatest of all beings. Along with your Son and the Spirit, you are great. There is no one like you. There are no gods like you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Uh, Thank you for bringing us here this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.